0: Hello and welcome to another episode of FinTech Insider News, we're coming to you from WeWork London. I'm Aidan Davis and today I'm joined by my esteemed 11FS colleague, Mr. Simon Taylor. Hello. I'm also joined by two of our fantastic news regulars, Liz Lumley. Hello. And Kadeem Shuba. Hi, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Uh, We have drinks in our hands and insights to share. Let's do some news. (laughs) On with the first story then. Uh, BNP Paribas jumps into virtual reality. Now, uh, is this an exciting advance in banking technology or just a little bit of marketing gone a bit crazy? Let me just give you a little bit of insight. BNP have launched something called Le Pod, which is a pod that <laughs> I think they're going to put in branches or wherever where you can, you can go and visit... Uh, real estate yeah. via the magic of virtual reality, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. They're also talking about a, a banking app that's coming soon to be demoed at an upcoming conference. They've also gone crazy and done a, a conference video in 360 degree joy. Liz, you're shaking <laughs> your head as if this is not the future well, you want.
1: no, no, no. It's, it's, I mean, AI and virtual reality and all the cool tech is, of course, it gets a lot of press, but I always want to say, what is it for? You know, I actually to be honest with you, using virtual reality to look at real estate kinda makes sense. That but having a game or just for the sake of it or a conference call, what's the point? I think it's just sort of boys really wanting to play with toys.
0: Is it not showing that they get the digital future? They understand it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. <I> just...
2: <laughs> this just seems like that more of that innovation department BS, right? I mean, before it was smart watches, and you were going to make payments with your smart watch, and then there was chat bots, and it's like innovation departments churning out stuff that nobody's ever going to use. It's just like now, I can imagine if there was something where in a branch you were doing something where somebody might be looking at their house as you're talking them through it, and you've got some other company yeah, in there. I that's... see
1: that. I get the Part real of a journey. The... Yeah.
2: Um, But, like, by itself, it just seems really unthought through. I mean, one of the things Jason often talks about is, like, we need to be thinking less about tech and more about end-to-end customer journeys. Like, where does a financial services product fit in an end-to-end customer journey? It's not, I want to get a mortgage. It's, I want to buy a house. The the need of a person is very, very different. So how does virtual reality do that? I agree
1: agree with you completely, because I've been, I won't name the bank, but I was talking to a bank that wanted to do customer experiments. They wanted to do something very PR-y and get a lot of press. And it was about you know things that customers needed, but all they kept on saying was, can we use virtual reality? Can we use holograms? Can we use... And it's like, don't start with the tech, because that makes no sense. Start with the problem.
3: I, uh, I mean, I'm just going to defend them just because everyone okay. else hasn't. But I mean, so it is nonsense, right? It's just it, it is good
2: defense. I know, I,
0: it, the, the, the attack the, the, defense. Well, the, the tactic
3: is to concede and then um, no, but yeah. So it's you know it's a bit of uh, fun from the marketing department. Uh, you know, in the past it would have been augmented reality, and now it's virtual reality, and no matter you know whatever the cool thing at the time is that's what you do and you get a bit of press and that's fine. I guess I don't really see like the harm from it necessarily. And I think it's interesting you referred it to like chatbots and smartwatches. Both of those are still good ideas, right? Like paying for stuff with your watch still kind of cool if you can make it work and use it. Chatbots probably uh, a really, you know, a good thing to happen in the future. Virtual reality in a bank, I mean, me. May- but you know like
2: virtual like why why would i need to use virtual reality in a bank i am struggling a little bit here i'll concede it feels to me like virtual reality is kind of half baked at the moment it's it's not ready yet the technology that's really here and now uh is machine learning but machine learning is being used effectively but but it's
1: not it's not being used it's not in the the practical cases
2: Uh, uh, oh i completely agree in financial services the technology that is here and now is tensorflow from google actively working inside google photos and picking your best photos and automatically making them look better for you, removing fences from them. Really cool stuff. It's that, that kind of stuff that the really big tech companies are using now that in five years, you know, like now how every big exec goes on about like we've all got a, a supercomputer in our pockets and mobile has transformed the world. It's like, yeah, we know. Well <laughs> the thing they're gonna be boring with us with in five years is the machine learning thing. Like it, it will get there. That is the big transformation. But the it the way it's being implied in financial services, again it's very obtuse. Yeah. It's like, and it's what,
1: not real it's not it's not the machine learning you are talking about
2: no no no, no, no. It, it's okay. a it's big vendors selling if then else statements it's selling basic analytics as ai as if it's come from rules
1: based algorithms <laughs> it's not machine learning but um
2: <laughs> but just i mean on the
3: on the vr thing I do, I, I do support it whole wholeheartedly because i have a friend who works for a vr production company and i Really want to keep you know him to keep his job for as long as possible. <laughs> so the more marketing departments who do these sort of silly little VR things, I think the better for our burgeoning VR economy.
0: I think I will also defend as someone who used to work in an innovation team who dreamed about getting this stuff in front of customers. Just because a there is a there's an experiential element to it, you
1: know. Because you wanted to play with the toys. It, no, no, but but <laughs> if, if
0: you're a customer and you you know you come in for a mortgage quote and instead of being sat board in a branch, you're sat board in a branch, but then you're getting to go into the pod. And, and, and there's cool about that there's you know there's something cool about it. it is tech for tech
3: i would i would pay an extra 50 basis points on my mortgage just (laughs) for the pause and that's the dream but i I think the
0: fact that again i'm always a fan of big banks when they are willing to experiment try something a little bit different it might not change the world but at least the try it I respect that, Ian.
2: I do, but why not do something with a media brand that really gets this and can think up how you might involve a bank in that in some way? Why not, why not give 11FS us- a call and we will have a chat.
3: <laughs> or Kadeem's friend who can help you out. I wonder how long I'll get away with making fun of 11FS on, on your own podcast.
2: I don't know. We, we, we haven't got a noose just yet, but we're, we're thinking about it. No, the, we have got a very I, good editor, though. I, I was thinking more like... Like, uh, you know, like a movie production studio or a game studio or, you know, something that reaches out to a new generation to acquire a new generation of customers. If this is simply marketing, then do marketing well for a generation of people that you want to acquire as customers that adds value to your bottom line. Like if you're going to do a gimmick, make sure the gimmick's got a payoff. Or
0: go full on gimmick. Let's, you know, the, the the minority interface is still like the biggest AI, you know, biggest sci-fi dream. We've still not really got there crazily, but if they're going to launch this banking app in a few weeks time and it is really manipulating your financial services world in VR for no other reason than it just looks cool, it will be interesting. Anyway, moving on to something a little bit more real world and a little bit more uh, close to home. But yeah, Simon, uh, Bank of America preps data sharing service.
2: I know. So um, APIs and PSD2, we hear a lot about that in Europe, but um, the American banks actually seem to be taking some really interesting steps. So Bank of America says an article on Finextra here, working with multiple data aggregators to provide customers with the ability to connect data from their accounts to the likes of Intuit or Zero or Finicity. So if you're a small business and you are sending invoices out and operating day-to-day as a small business, you're probably using Intuit or Zero or, or something like this already. And you probably had to use a service like Yodlee or, or something like that to hostile integrate, so to, to log into your bank account as if it were you and scrape the transactions out of your bank account. So why is it then that the likes of Wells Fargo and Chase and Capital One and now Bank of America are doing this in the U.S. without regulation? Is it because they it's don't want
1: culture? A- it's in America. America is traditionally. Uh- Skeptical of, of regulations, and they tend to prefer. I'm not arguing for or against this, but Americans tend to prefer market-based solutions. It's just the way America works.
2: And I wonder if this is the bank saying, "Hey, we don't need any of that PSD two stuff. Mm. Look, the market can solve it. Here, yes, we've already that's done it."
1: Very Ameri- That's a very American mindset.
2: But is there not also a control element to this? Because
0: only a couple of years ago, basically, you know, aggregators grew, you know, pretty successfully in the U.S. because there was. Fairly lax security standards. Scraping was uh, the norm there, but there was also a few XML feeds out of banks. But then the banks a couple of years ago just cut off access and said, no, "Let's stop this." And I think there was a realization that they be- they've become too big of a threat. Is this now a case of we're going to build the platforms? We're going to announce a couple of partnerships with some key aggregators, but we're going to control the flow because there's no there's no mention this about well what are the standards going to be or is it going to be each and every big bank
2: and doing their own deals with their own big aggregators to just make a bigger ecosystem that's... Make no mistake about it. This is not open banking as we would know it in Europe. However, if they build really good one-to-one integration with with these points, I mean, if I'm running a small business, do I really care if I can see it, if I can see all of my financial data and it's really easy to use? Hmm, maybe I don't. But I'm wondering, like, will we see people really adopt this? This is going to be an interesting thing. Like, if I'm a small business, do I want to see all of my financial information? And will that be better when I'm trying to run my business that I can see it all inside zero. I can see it all inside Intuit? Is that actually going to make a real improvement to my life? It's quite interesting. Um, this
3: quote from there, I mean, it's a quote from their head of digital banking, which is, you know, you'd expect them to be super pro APIs and so on. But it is interesting. It was only well a few months ago or maybe quite a few months ago now that Jamie Diamond uh, sort of came out very strongly against uh, this whole idea and said, you know, d- there'll be doom in Armageddon if uh, you know people are allowed to pull their own data out of um, out of the bank. Um, i do I do think it's interesting that they're moving despite the absence of you know a, a big wall of regulation that's going to come into play and force them all to do it. And I think it's partly to do with this idea that some banks will try and get ahead. Because if there's going to be new territory opening up, um, it's better to get there first than than to arrive late. And I guess the same thing is going to happen. You know, in Europe, we do talk a lot about PSD two. It's not entirely clear how much progress any bank is making towards um, adopting those standards and so on and so forth. So um, I imagine the same sort of dynamics will play out here, where there'll be you know one, two, three, or four banks who are actually being proactive, and the likes of Jamie Diamond, JP Morgan, and whoever else. Um, you know, dragging their feet.
0: I don't know. I, th- I still think there's lots and lots of um, play in the open banking space. I think from a US point of view, like you were saying, Karim, I think them getting ahead of the regulators is an interesting one. Before the rules come down, we're already doing this. Why would you bother making the effort? Whereas PSD2, et cetera, does feel like a it's like a painful route to it. So yeah, will the market win versus the regulators forcing it win?
2: And here they've picked an end-to-end customer journey. I want to manage my business and manage all of my invoices and I want to see my financial data in one place. That's a really clear customer need that makes complete sense. Whereas I'm just going to open up my financial data and anyone can access it if they follow these rules isn't as clear as, and beneficial to, to their customers. So there's a simplicity to it, but there's a benefit to that simplicity that's quite interesting. Well, let's see if
0: it's a big collaborative ecosystem and they all work together. Come by out. Like the next story. So yeah, uh, interesting story coming out of the Netherlands. Dutch banks bid to manage falling cash use through joint ATM network. Uh, The three biggest banks in the Netherlands joining together to standardize ATM usage. Uh, There was a similar story related uh, where Swiss banks are looking to standardize the interface of ATMs across the country. So we've got this move where the original fintech, ATMs, uh, this cost for banks Uh, And not really a channel that many banks have managed to make anything other than a service channel. You know, banks coming together to look to take cost out of it, standardise this stuff, make it better for customers as well as cheaper. Is that? I'm interested in this in that because it is an interesting. Just it's just the face of technology for banking
2: involved. I just
1: think ATMs are going to die out soon.
2: We're seeing them die, (laughs) aren't we? I mean, the death is happening surely. And they cost banks money. Like, you've got to ship all these bits of paper around in trucks to all of these different outlets. You've got to maintain this secure bit of hardware all over the country. If something goes wrong, you've got to send an engineer out to the thing. I mean, it's fixed cost. And people want cash. I get that, especially in vulnerable communities. So they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. But With less and less people using cash, there was an article I saw where um, in the UK for the first time, debit cards have overtaken cash usage. Surely the trend is towards less ATMs and keeping ATMs where you absolutely have to rather than this. This seems like the Dutch market, which is known for being quite innovative, they have Ideal there, which is a really great sort of uh, network in terms of the payments uh, kind of stuff, the debit payments. Why are they why are they doing this? Why do they feel the need to do this? This one baffles me. Well, I don't know. I mean I
3: mean to be fair, I mean they do say it's gonna be an optimized and safer network. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> which has fewer ATMs. So it sounds like <laughs> sounds like a big sort of
0: call. Is it kind of just like drive. keeping
1: something going while they yeah, maybe it's a bit just of- it's
0: taking the cost out of things. It's like I don't know check processing in the UK. My first ever job at HSBC was 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 check processing, and the industry. Do you
3: mean like writing, like signing them, building in. service <laughs> to do?
0: <laughs>
1: taking your of- phone well, and taking a picture of the check. Yeah,
0: it's just a commodity. Like you say, it's a fixed cost, Simon. I can't see them going away anytime soon. Debit card usage may be overtaking, but we're still talking like. 52, 55 percent
1: cash yeah, but, isn't going anywhere. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, there's soon. the the argument about say the death of bank branches always gets around. You know, always gets pushed around this customer behavior and technology. When actually, branches are expensive for banks. Banks want to get rid of branches. You know, for their own. That's the whole chatbot argument. But I I, I don't understand why. They want to keep the ATM networks going on. It's interesting that you said, you know, vulnerable communities. That's a fintech startup opportunity to go in and help vulnerable communities that are walking around with big piles of cash.
3: Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I think the sort of death of cash thing is, yes, it's happening, um, but there's a kind of, there's a societal role that cash plays. You know, some of those are uh, legitimate. Some of those are less legitimate. Some of those are totally illegitimate. Um, but there are reasons to use cash and to take into take money out of the sort of uh, turn money from you know electronic bank money into you know cash central bank money in a sense. I think what's really interesting is eventually when we move to digital, we get rid of all ATMs. It has really interesting sort of like monetary policy implications. Like one of the things during the financial crisis was well, one bank might be going down, there might be a run on that bank but there are ATMs everywhere that anyone can go to, to try and take out money so you have this sort of because every bank will sur- will let any bank customer use their own ATMs bank run like the the risk of a bank run is sort of well, higher know, if I know, you have ATMs i know ATMs. people that
1: um, during the height of the greek crisis you know went to visit their family with just piles of cash on them <laughs> because they just needed money um, yeah, yeah.
2: Maybe it's the future of digital cash, right? There's the, the physical paper cash has a downside, but it has some real upsides. People like physical things and, and especially certain generations and especially certain communities. There is something to be said for it without question. But there's a startup called uh, Abra, A-B-R-A. Um, they're operating in markets where fixed ATMs don't really exist in, in emerging economies. And their tagline unofficially is the Uber or the Airbnb of uh, cash machines. So there's actually a few cars that have cash machines in them that will come to your community. And then if you want to get cash out, there are a few times a day in which you can get it. Now, granted, that's not going to solve for every market everywhere, but it's the type of thing where you can sort of see maybe that's this little bridging technology that gets us away from these fixed bits of infrastructure because fixed cost, fixed infrastructure as a business model is very, very difficult. To, to really maintain but if we have no fixed infrastructure if nobody's doing it then what happens to these communities that rely on it i think there's there's a real tension there yeah but the, i mean the, the the simple need is sometimes i don't want
3: uh, people to know what i'm buying um <laughs> you know it may not be you know you, you probably get to a point where everything becomes digital and then you start to think well actually i don't want everything that i purchase to be attached to my digital identity which is therefore you know
2: mapped onto you know, however many other databases and, you know, I adds pay to my profile. This was the original dream that I don't think has been fulfilled of Bitcoin, right? To create anonymous digital cash because it did cash is anonymous by its default. So if you have the digital version of that that is, in theory, quote-unquote, untraceable, then you've got the same thing, but you don't have the costs of moving it around. And the other thing with digital cash is, in theory, I can drop it in a teleporter and in three hours it's in Australia. It's a lot harder to do with physical cash.
3: Yeah, I think, um, and not uh, just to you know, take it all the way to the sort of anarchic conclusion, so to speak, it's in the interest of sort of the elites and the powerful to eliminate cash, right? Cent- it allows central banks to control money in the economy much more powerfully. Um, it allows authorities to track people's spending. It allows advertisers to know what people are buying, so on, so on, so forth. When you get to the question of like, well, what does a person individually get from cash or not cash? Like maybe this, I don't know, the slight inconvenience of having, go to, having to go to the ATM, right? And so I, the story to me does seem like there are lots of good reasons to do it, but they're all don't the There's reasons of this powerful ballots. people.
1: This is, this is a friend of mine wrote a story for the New York Times in the 90s about um, there was a massive crime spree in New York of busboys from restaurants because they'd be walking around at one o'clock in the morning in their uniforms and all the muggers knew they'd have pockets full of cash.
3: That is a good point.
1: And they just got attacked constantly. So, you know, walking around with pockets full of cash.
2: Well, this is the this <laughs> is the I, I grant you that one hundred percent. And this a is the point. ambitious story um, in Kenya as well, which is you had communities where people uh, were entrusted by their local village um, and community elder to take medicine from uh, from one village to another or from the hospital to the, to their village. And these people would be going around with the equivalent of uh, months and months, if not years, of wages sitting in their pockets on their motorbike, and they were highly attractive targets for people to to mug. Uh, and actually, when they were able to. Try Transfer money using the mobile phone, that crime almost completely disappeared. There are pros and cons on either side, and naturally, uh, digital alternatives do provide a lot of benefits as much as the uh, paper versions and, can be and friendly.
1: Money is so dirty, you have no idea. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Germaphobe <laughs> alert.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from dirty money to, oh, dirty money actually. <laughs> Liz, uh, HSBC partners with AI startup to combat money laundering.
1: Yes, this is from the lovely Anna Herrera, who's now the uh, in New York as a fintech correspondent for Reuters. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. She's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one of the things that that we dealt with when I was at Startup Bootcamp was the startups kind of thinking they had this solution for the banking uh, partners. And the banks coming to us and saying, we really wish the startups would, you know, really focus on what our problems are and help us solve some of these problems. And we all know that HSBC had some problems with money laundering in the past. I haven't. Most (laughs) little problems. (laughs) Little little issues. I'm not looking at anyone here on this table. Um, But yes, I guess this was a pilot. Uh, So the startup is called Iosti. Yeah, we're going to have to get me?
0: Anna on the phone and see how I know, I'm
1: really, really bad. Um, and so they did a pilot to uh, automate some of the compliance processes in a bid to become more efficient. Uh, and according to your friend and mine, Chief Operating Officer Andy McGuire, he said that in the pilot, HSBC saw the number of investigations drop by 20% without reducing the number of cases referred for more, referred for more scrutiny he's calling this a win-win we reduce risks and it costs less money
2: that's solving a problem so if you haven't been following the headlines in the last few years banks have been taking massive massive fines and most of their fines have actually been coming from this sort of stuff. there's been a bit of misconduct but the really big fines have been coming from not dealing with money laundering and terrorist financing and really bad stuff happening of people, bad people moving money around the world. And part of the reason for that is the way that banks try and prevent bad people moving money around the world is by making sure that the other bank is looking at that person's passport at some point and knows who that person is. And the way they move money around the world is sending each other messages. It's like sending somebody an email. My client wants to move money to your client. And so if I've got an email and I'm trusting that the other person's looked at their passport, a lot can go wrong. But actually, if that email goes from one bank to a second bank to a third bank to a fourth bank to a fifth bank, you get this whole problem of this concertina effect where I'm trusting... That's how money
1: laundering works.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you wash the money, right? And so it becomes harder and harder to trace that stuff well if i've got all of the transaction information then ai in theory what it's what machine learning is really good at is looking for patterns looking for patterns that the humans wouldn't see so this to me solves something like it if you, the business case to a CEO of a bank is really, really simple. Do you know those big fines? Here's a way to re- potentially reduce those, if not like start to limit them more and more. That is a, a, a case for AI. I that mean, I yeah, I cr- I
1: mean even, even more of a case in AI, I mean, I think any fintech vendor that helps a bank with compliance and risk issues is, is going down the right route. You're going to get at least a meeting. I think
0: it's not, <laughs> the fines themselves are, are obviously huge, but then it's the cost of, spinning up those compliance departments. So certainly from my time at a certain bank, the cost and all the budget was gone over there. Hire as many people as you want, solve this problem. Throw people at it. Throw people at it, throw everything at it, show that we're doing something. And I think now that you've got through the initial uh, hard part of the problem, identifying what it is, uh, building out that capability, I think now is again, why we were saying before, why RegTech is so hot right now, is because you've got this mass of people trying to uh, deal with these massive complex problems, and it is a perfect, perfect use case for it's, AI, it's machine more, learning, it's more than just It's more
1: than just the fees as well. I mean, it's a PR, it's, you know, it's the, all, the, all the associated costs. Yeah,
3: But I, I sort of, I mean, all of those things are absolutely true. I sort of wonder what like artificial intelligence means in this context. Because in any uh, context, in any context <laughs> ob- yeah, that, that is always the question because you've got uh, the chief operating officer of HSBC, Andy McGuire, and he then says uh, the AI technology can help uh, because, quote, it can do things human beings are not typically good at, like high frequency High volume data problems. Mm. That just sounds like computing, right? That
2: just sounds. Yeah, no, it's a bit different. So um, I'm quite close to uh, the founders at a company called Sayari Analytics. So S A Y A R I. Um, And when they described this problem to me, and I don't know if it's the same as this company that's worked with HSBC, but they basically said, look, every country passport looks a little bit different. The numbers are in a little bit of a different place. The watermarks are in a little bit different place. And it's hard to tell from a photocopy if it's legitimate. Similarly, every bank's form for what they've done looks a little bit different. It has the same basic things on it, but it looks a little bit different. And so humans that are looking at different forms in different jurisdictions, the numbers are jumping around the page all the time. But you kind of know what you're looking for. And if you're well-trained, I can find this um, suspicious activity report number and I can find this passport. But I, I don't know all of the passports in the world and I don't know all of the countries in the world and I don't know all of the bank's forms in the world. This is the type of problem that machine learning is really good at because you just feed it enough stuff and it goes, okay, the number's jumping around the page, but if I do this enough, I can learn where that number jumps to. It's the same as learning that if I see enough pictures, that is definitely a cat. It's the same type of technique that TensorFlow uses for Google to find bits within a form and to infer what that means and then for that to drive a process. That's the kind of thing that machine learning is essentially very, very good at.
3: But The interesting thing is... um... So they've reduced the number of investigations without reducing the number of cases referred to for extra scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So presumably there's stuff that they're already rejecting and
2: now they're just just rejecting it faster, as in saying that they don't need to look at it further, right? They've reduced the number of false positives. Yeah. So we think this might be fraud. Oh, wait, it's not. We can just skip that one by the second and third phase of this would probably be much more interesting which is we found this is fraud we've also going to report this automatically that's where this gets really exciting um and that's the the really advanced stuff that i think um if i'm in a, a bank compliance department i would be saying yes absolutely we want more of that
0: Moving on, but staying with HSBC and AI, and Andy McGuire, actually. Great headline in Bloomberg this last week. uh, HSBC discovers consumers trust robots for surgery over savings. And this is a (laughs) study that the bank have had done into um, robo-advisory services and the like to see if customers actually trust them. There's also been a similar uh, study done by ING in the last week with, again, interesting results. Uh, Again, another quote from Andy – I find it slightly odd, said the chief officer. You think, gosh, one would have imagined the world had moved on further or was moving faster than that. I think there's a, a bit of a shock about the fact that people don't trust Robots to inve- invest know, their money? It, but it sounds I, I, like intrigued... one of
1: those surveys that Ron Shevlin would make fun of. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do you pose the question, do you trust a yes. robot
0: to invest your money, or do you trust AI to invest your money? Or how yeah. how you frame no. that question I don't... massively impacts mm-hmm. its outcome? Yeah,
3: I'm I I I was like super skeptical about this and I just I just okay, I'm just gonna flat out I just don't believe it. I think it's nonsense. I think the equivalent here is not do you trust a robot to do your surgery? It's you're gonna walk into a hospital, and there's something wrong with you, and you don't know what it is, and no human being is going to like assess you. I've just got this robot's gonna do it. Do you feel comfortable with that? Obviously, no, right? Like, would would you let a robot do your surgery? It's like, yes. After being diagnosed and talked to and assessed, and there's a guy standing there beside the robot. I've met the robot, shook hands with the robot. I feel comfortable with the robot. I mean, in in actuality, people will go onto a website um, or. Or whatever it is, put in their details. You know, tell the machine who they are, and it'll go. How about this option? And I go, yeah, that makes sense. And I don't think people are like super uncomfortable with that because in reality, you know, there, there will be someone they can. You know, the, sorry, the right product will be. There'll be someone they can call. Are you
1: going to talk about robo advisors?
2: <laughs> um, well, I was going to say that it's not robo and it's not advisory, but yeah, <laughs> it's portfolio theory. But we've we've covered that a lot of times on the on the show. Um, you know, I, what I was going to say is that. There's definitely something here about that empathy point that Karen makes. People want empathy, but there's a way that you frame the question here in which, yeah, it has also caused a problem. But I wonder if they're doing that because they've done that before. They, we had this with, do you trust, who do you trust with your payments? Apple and the tech companies and Facebook, or do you trust the bank? And people go, well, it's the bank. And it's like, who do you trust to put out a fire? The fire department or Amazon? I don't do Amazon down. I reckon they would put out fires very well. well, well. So this this is kind of my point, right? Who? When a bank is where your money goes, the police are where the policemen come from. The it, There's just something in the definition it, yeah. where you're going to ask the question in today's mindset and you're going to get the answer you want. It's a misleading survey. And shout out to Ron Shevlin for calling BS on the types of misleading questions because yes, absolutely, this is a misleading question. That said, there's something here about the Paul Tituson piece from Barclays where he said, what is the competitive advantage of humans? And this is Karim's point. The competitive advantage of humans is having that empathy being able to problem solve for people making them feel better making them letting them know that what the computers told them is right putting your arm armor right, that type of stuff is absolutely what we need humans for and you can there display was, that there digitally.
1: was a, a chart and I went looking for it and I can't find it so I apologize talking about when robots will take over our jobs, you know, like, you know, the, the timeline. And one of it was in, in the next five years, a robot will will write a New York Times bestseller. Now, it's probably true. There's a lot of crappy books in the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> but will a robot write a good book will they write a book that makes you cry that you love that you reread over and over again i think that's gonna be a lot longer than five years I, and, I,
2: and i also think that these things where they say a robot's written it there's a human guiding hand behind yeah. it there was a thing where there was it's a,
1: copied the way another human writes it's, it's
2: it's copied the way another human writes it and there's also being a lot of learning it was fed by a human so there was um we covered on the the show about uh, i don't know maybe 20, 30 weeks ago, there was um, IBM did a piece with a movie production studio for a movie where the trailer was picked the key moments from the movie and then it took humans to stitch that together to put the music over the top. Or eventually, machines could get there with it, but also they made some artistic ideas that the machine didn't come up with. And that combination of humans and uh, machine learning and robots, that's the perfect combination right now. And and they're stronger together than they are apart for the foreseeable. So I think what you're saying there is that
0: we should get Watson to kind of throw a trailer together of your investments. <laughs> Simon! exciting opportunities
2: no no i just want cyborgs but, uh, and <laughs> no, <duh. laughs>
3: i i'm i'm kind of I, I buy the idea that there isn't a single thing that humans can necessarily do in the sort of conceptual space that a robot cannot do as well i mean part of the empathy thing is humans have the advantage of being like physical beings that other human beings have you know been trained to empathize with a sort of like uh, ev- in an evolutionary sense but certainly like finance is like is at the bottom of my ladder of things that robots can replace humans in doing sort of conceptually right um it's numbers based just to begin with so that's a great uh, computer territory books and so on like newspaper articles all of that stuff yeah sure i mean in the world of journalism you know that what you do is formulaic right like you follow rules (laughs) I know, you know, like the creativity is not in like the writing, right? It's in the certain physical things that a human reporter can do, like call someone up, have like a friendship with someone, go somewhere and look at things. That's where your advantage is, not in um, the sort of rule-based writing or deciding what like uh, investment creates the best return and so on and so forth.
0: Uh, I guess one angle to this as well is just the classic thing of people just don't know they've never had this thing making the decisions for them. And the uh, ING research was interesting. Uh, Natalie Spencer, behavioral scientist at ING, uh, looked into it and she said that people have a lot of faith in their own ability to make the best decisions. So what they, were, that what they were seeing is that people wanted the computer to kind of suggest decisions to them, but then they have ultimately control or the decision to say yes or no, which is... Which is... Uh, it reminds me of George W. Bush. I'm the
3: decider. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's a terrible, terrible accent. an
1: innocent time. You have no idea. <laughs> oh, well,
0: we had a great president. <laughs> I <know. laughs> but I, I, I don't know. There's something in that, isn't there?
2: A, people have not seen this. It should be amazing. It should make your life better. But it's it's too unknown like you wind the clock back to 2005 and ask people who do you trust to produce a phone Um, Sony Ericsson or Nokia or Apple and they'll say Sony Ericsson or Nokia like before a thing has happened you go with the thing you know yeah I'm glad we're firmly on the people do not know what they want bandwagon (laughs) I'm just
0: nobody can mention the famous Ford quote well that won't be allowed in it no no and that wraps up part one now a word from our sponsors The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com.
1: Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription.
0: Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs
1: Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
0: Thanks very much to our sponsors. Next up then, a story from MIT Technology Review, which uh, for some people might not come as a surprise and for some people will be horrified. Google now tracks your credit card purchases and connects them to its
3: online profile of you, Kadeem. I think you've got a real interest in this story. <laughs> it's one of those sort of inevitabilities, I guess. So Google say that they now have a way of uh, tying together what you search for um, and uh, what you're interested in online, and in in fact, also where you go through Google Maps, and inevitably what you actually spend money on. They say through third parties, they can now uh, connect it to 70% of credit card purchases Although they do add, and this is the bit that's meant to reassure you, that they have patent pending mathematical formulas that ensure that there's a kind of firewall between what Google knows and what the retailer or credit card company knows. So there's a sort of anonymity um, sort of but da-
1: not yet. <laughs> not yet. And they do yeah. So the
3: story says, in addition, Google does not know what products people have bought. And you just think, well, that's not going to be a, you know, a situation that lasts very long. If I was Google, I would want to know that. And as soon as everyone looked the other way, I would surge hell find out that.
2: But I think there's a nuance here. Do they know what you actually bought, or are they able to expose that data to an advertiser that wants to sell to that thing? They don't have to know the answer themselves to be able to hold a cryptographic uh, proof of what you did buy for somebody who is interested in that thing to be able to target that thing. And that's a that's a nuanced point, right? It, it's worth stating that, like, if I obfuscate, if I hide the fact that. I bought a pair of shoes if I was able to mask it, but I was able to prove to you that that was a pair of shoes if you were the advertiser that that let's say, I don't know, it's a red circle and you're an advertiser and you know that you're looking for shoes and I match two red circles as Google, then what I've done is I've matched two people that want underlying shoes in this ecosystem. I mean, I think I
3: think the point is okay. So, hey, what I mean, what is the reason to know something about what people have bought, right? So, in Google's case, it's to profit from it, right? It's to be able to sell, sell better advertising. advertising for, yeah, yeah. So, it's to profit from it, um, and so whether it finds a way so that, in, it, that technically it it itself does not know that Adam sugar bought a pair of trainers at the store in Carnaby Street on the, you know, twentieth of June or whatever date it is. Slightly allied to the point, which is well, there is this map of you, right, through, which which is constituted from your Gmail, your uh, use of Google Maps, your use of YouTube, what you do in the real world. Whether or not that's
2: an like, anonymized, kind well, it's not of that it's anonymized; it's that it. it. nobody can read that map. The only thing that can happen is ads can be sold on the basis of the the patterns within that map. Now, if you don't like that fact, I completely understand that. That that makes perfect sense to me. I want to have my privacy. I don't want to have because you already have the thing where you go onto a website once and the thing follows you around the internet. Yeah. That's retargeting. That's the basis of what Google have been about for ten years, twenty years since they bought DoubleClick. The idea that you could then see that from a physical world, you might go into Tesco and buy a thing or into uh, Walgreens in the U S and buy a thing. And then that thing starts following you around the internet. I can see why to Google that's hugely valuable, but, but just, just, I can see why to you it'd be annoying. But just, no, but just
3: to come back to you one last time and then I'll just, I'll let it go. But mm-hmm. so, I mean, I mean, if, let if, it go. It, be first <laughs> but, okay, but if I say, listen, listen, I've built this thing. I don't know what you're doing. But the thing i built it does know what you're doing i just don't really buy that as a like as a meaningful distinction right so i I believe that you know sergey brin he doesn't know potentially he potentially can't like look me up on whatever internal system but the fact that Google's like a profit mate uh google and alphabet they exist to make profit and they therefore profit off my identity and what i do Mm. the idea that well listen you know no one actually knows it's you kind of the, you, know, some, you know, something does know. It's the thing selling adverts which makes Google well, profit. Well, a little
1: bit, maybe, maybe just to play devil's advocate, I mean, you know, we earlier had a story talking about how surveys are a bit ridiculous, the questions they ask. And if there was, you know, if you're looking at how to improve customer service, actually having data about where you walk to and what you buy and what you pick up and what you don't and what you look at might actually improve that whole environment. Where stuff is in the stores, how much stuff they have of it, the sizes they put in. Um, if you're talking about clothes, you know. So if if that kind of data it doesn't matter whether it's you specifically, if you can find out that everyone's buying um, Adidas trainers on Carnaby Street, then those stores will stock up.
0: I think that for me is an interesting point in that <clears throat> today it's it's a hidden thing. And, you know, there's, there's machines trying to work that out, but regulation like GDPR, the general data, general data Protection, data protection Regulation. regulation it's trying to push data back into consumers' hands. And it's going to be interesting to understand if people will willingly give that to Google or to say, I, well, this is, I, this I is did, me, this yeah. is what I've actually the, bought. Give me better, give me the, better. The horse efforts. has bolted, yeah. but, but we
3: have to I mean, the thing that, the thing that gets me about this is that they're they're making this argument that we have these mathematical formulas that we mean well there's separation so that's all fine but we've seen in the past that actually what happens is that initially there's a separation but the the logic has to be that well why would you have that from a business point of view there is no reason to have that separation unless people are very angry about their privacy right and so as long as you can persuade people to not be angry about their privacy you would want from a profit standpoint to to actually know what people what products they bought right and i should also so i should uh admit a uh, conflict here which is i recently read the Circle by Dave Eggers. And so I'm totally. Uh, <laughs> it's,
0: a, it's a good book. I mean, yeah, so I'm totally t- t- see, totally on my mind I just bought
2: a Google Home and I'm connecting it to the uh, to the Chromecasts and I've got like a Pixel phone. So like I'm fully. Don't into- doom yourself. Don't go down that <laughs> path. I look, seriously, if, if they're watching me, I don't mind that it's them watching me. I'd pr- rather have them watching me than other people because at least I know they're competent with tech versus governments that aren't. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, that's where I'm at. Um, but this is an interesting one because, yeah, to Liz's point, I can totally see why you could profit from it. But I can totally see Kadim's point, which is why people would be spooked out by it. And I think there is definitely some nuance that needs to be made around don't make adverts annoying. If you're going to know what I bought, really, really work on only serving me something when I'm likely to want it. Then otherwise, then I won't mind it so much. But the, the old saying is if what you're using is free, then you're not. the product is you right? You're the thing being sold. Same with Facebook, same with Google. And I don't know that that model changes until we have a new revenue model in the internet space. And there's early talk of Web3.0, but I think that's so far away that this is the model that's here to stay. And you know, your own industry has suffered from that. Journalism well, has suffered at the front end.
3: Well, that's why you should buy a subscription to the Financial Times and FD.com. Oh, I <laughs> see. Now, now, now he knows he's
2: got the odds going. Uh, uh, this we guy. To a discount code <laughs> for the listeners. There. Yeah. Him. Next time you yeah, you that. no we
3: need full price
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm fascinated by this I think like I said at the top I think it's, it's, it feels obvious it feels you know it's not, it's not a shock but I think it's, it's going to horrify a lot of people and probably a lot of regulators etc but it's showing the power of financial data that is about to be freed next up then uh, Simon Mario Draghi the president
2: of the ECB he's mentioned the word fintech he That's exciting. It, he mentioned it more than once, yeah. So um, President of the ECB, of course, having a, a fairly large uh, responsibility of the European Central Bank, um, and hearing committee for the monetary affairs of the European Parliament sort of said, here's the economic outlook, Europe's steadily coming out of the financial crisis, we're doing all right, uh, printing money worked, and we want to get inflation under control. Not very exciting. But then he did say, today, fintech, the application of new technologies to banking and financial services, is a traditional is a potentially transformative force. We're closely monitoring it to understand its impact and to assess the risk. Uh, deep knowledge of this will be very, very helpful to us. This is very, very similar to what Mark Carney said six months ago that, look... We think this fintech thing is actually gonna be a thing. We know it's we know it's out there, but also we're seeing some risks from a macroeconomic standpoint. If we move from having lots of big banks that we've figured out how to regulate to having lots of small fintechs, there's gonna be some risks here, so we need to keep an eye out for it. This to me is kind of like this moment in which um, the increasing relevance of non-banks Digital innovation uh, really means that these big regulators are starting to pay attention and they're really thinking about some of the risks. What does that mean? If I'm in a fintech, it means that the regulators are thinking about how I'm going to get regulated. It means I need to be talking to these regulators. It means I need to have answers to these questions. And it means the things that you know, Karim has been writing about for years, that, hey, look at this fintech, this looks a bit dodgy. The regulators are now starting to pay attention. That That's what it means to me. I, I don't know if you guys have... No no views.
1: I I absolutely love when the traditional banking world talks about fintech and especially not in a not in a completely like
2: patronizing.
1: patronizing way you know it it's kind of like a really good white rapper you know you like the song but there's something slightly off about it but it's <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to lose
2: yourself in the moment Sorry, yes. oh. Oh. That, was that was some quick punning The pun foo is yeah. strong today
1: We had Beyonce last time I mean but the ECB you know this is The issue I sometimes have with fintech Is this over um, Emphasis on front end and and you know retail and and payments all the stuff at the front the ecb has been working for ages on target2 securities they finally harmonized the settlement process you know that's looking at banking and financial technology from the back end it's a big deal, um, and that's all part of that fintech puzzle. And I think anyone who's going to dismiss and sniff at the ECB or Mark Carney talking about fintech and this is how we're looking at it and this is what you know, I think they're doing that at their peril because this is fintech is one big giant puzzle. Of,
2: here, here, you know. here, here. I, they, these are people who yes they move in five ten-year increments but the stuff they do really changes the industry and and this is the kind of stuff that if i'm a senior executive at a bank i'm thinking ooh, okay this fintech thing that the the central bankers are taking this seriously he wears uh, a
1: suit to work i should pay attention
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely um and you know you talk about targets to securities and solvency two and all that and Mifid two and all the things that uh, ceos of banks are really thinking about are they thinking about fintech as much as the central bankers are thinking about it? I think there's a mismatch there.
3: I think. I mean, he mentions here about um, fintech has the potential to impact the way the economy is financed and transmission mechanism of monetary policy. Um, just because, I mean, I've, I've uh, been interested in peer-to-peer lending and online lending, and I th- and maybe I you know I, I should probably write about it more. But it's one of those things that I think is underappreciated about peer-to-peer lending, which is how it, yeah, how it does affect monetary policy you have this sort of like pro-cyclicality to it where yes, it's great that you're giving um, a broader uh, group of investors access to you know, assets that would give you a return, um, but on the other hand, what you lose is uh, people who are dumb enough not to notice when they're losing their money, right? That's the great, <laughs> the great advantage of bank deposits. The last, you know, a run on the bank is you know, when finally the public have realized the bank is going down the, you know, down the pan. Um, You kind of lose that to a certain extent with P2P. And, you know, right now P2P lending is a small part of, you know, very small part of the overall lending picture. But if you think about well, what would it be like if it was a very large part of the lending picture, you suddenly have a lot of people who are expecting payments every single month and who will notice when defaults start to tick up, right? Nobody, you know, the public does not notice when well, the defaults start up. Well, look at what happened
1: with the endowment mortgages. I mean, you know. <laughs>
3: yeah, that's, that's the stuff I find really interesting because um, right now it's not big enough to really be meaningful in that sense. But if it is going to be a big deal in the future, those are the kind of questions people will be grappling with. Very good. Uh, and
0: talking about the peer-to-peer lending market, Kadeem, which you just said is only this big, in China, our weekly China is massive story. Uh, China's P2P lending market, 24 times bigger than the US fintech lending market. Now, I just want to give a big shout out to the Sydney Morning Herald, who uh, published this story, for one of the most unreadable articles I've ever seen in my life. In, <laughs> because there was just things interrupting it. I understand journalism business model is dying, Dear God, make things we readable. We have to stuff the channel. I that's had to so. cut and paste it into an Etherpad page. You mean you uh, don't use an ad
2: blocker? What is- <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: Do you
2: use an ad blocker? No, I was just asking you just, in the You PD. just mortally wounded Kadim, saying you use an ad blocker. I was just asking. I, I pay a subscription to the FT. I, I'm good. Uh,
0: that's what I like to hear. Mm. Kadeem, your take of this story, I think there's more to it than just
3: peer-to-peer lending volumes. It talks about
0: credit risks over China and the fintech volumes, lending volumes.
3: Yeah, this is actually, I was um, I was like really kicking myself when I saw this because it links to a really, really, really interesting report from the Financial Stability Board about what um, fintech means for credit and for lending, and it's a really great report, and um, it talks about, it really it really dives down and talks about what what does it actually mean It looks at the US looks at the UK looks at China and it's and it's true in the, in China the lending market of you know which is like new lending new, all these new companies it's huge whether it's peer to peer whether it's even online i mean these things are all debatable because it's not those things uh, for the most part but it's absolutely crazy it's huge and it's far more i don't know adva- advanced is not quite the right word so so there's a company called Dianrong in China and I've not been to China. I haven't like done all the due diligence on this company, but it's like the second or third largest, uh, quote unquote, peer-to-peer lender. Their like their app is insane, right? The, the the smallest amount of money that you can invest is one RMB, right? They they have this kind of crazy system where they will divide that up like to like the tenth decimal place. And then diversify your one RMB investment across like 100,000 separate loans. And this is the thing, and again, I don't know, this could just be like all vaporware. I don't know. I'm sure it's not. Um, but then you have an app, and so you can see your investments, and you go, oh, my investments. And then you click in, and it goes, well, here's the list of investments. And it is a list of like 100,000 loans. And then you can click and you yeah. can see the contract for every single loan. And every Banks month... Banks would kill for that. Like, every month, they like re- report all the data about their loans and about the borrowing and investing to like the local government. It's like this insane, granular... Anyway, so basically my point is that Chinese FinTech... Are there robots involved in this? <laughs> I don't, yeah, it's like Chinese FinTech, Chinese <laughs> lending. I should say, you know, I'm a reporter... I have not verified all that. That's from like one meeting I've had with a person, um, and it's uh, <laughs> good and, enough for us. Yeah, and so, um, but but basically, the point is that like, uh, fintech in China is absolutely wild and it's far bigger than P two P in uh, the U S or even in the U K. But I would really recommend looking at this article and actually reading the report because they really delve into these issues about like pro-cyclicality uh what are the issues for or the advantages for financial stability because you know these um uh, p2p lenders don't do maturity transformation for the most part they don't have the same liquidity concerns because you know it's a one-for-one thing you know that you're putting money in you won't get it out until the loan completes so anyway i've rambled on but
2: i really enjoyed I think that truly article. interesting and, and if people want to read this article or the underlying report the show notes are available on fintechinsider.com um, and the links are all there so check out fintechinsider.com and the show notes on, on this episode kind of, though i think you make a really interesting point peer-to-peer lending becomes systemically interesting and that links to the last thing we were saying about the ECB saying actually this is systemically interesting. Are the CEOs of banks thinking actually my loan book, my loan originations could be under threat here? I don't know that they are because fintech has been seen as playing at the edges, playing with small bits. But you look at China, you look at emerging economies and it's not doing that at all. It's it's right, actually quite exact. the opposite. Yeah.
0: Fascinating stuff. And I think like you're saying there's, uh, it's, the kind of back-end innovation that's really going to yep. change things.
1: Yep. Oh, anyway. yep. <laughs> you Moving deal, deal on. With the, you deal with the basement, deal with yes. the foundation, and the house will fall down. Moving on then. <laughs> Simon,
0: we have got a blockchain story in here this oh, week. You'll be good to know. Uh, <laughs> India's Bank Chain Consortium launches blockchain know-your-customer system. Tell us about this and how – I'm interested in how it differs from, you know, Adar system, biometrics everywhere – Yeah, so it's not
2: really a KYC system. It's a sharing information system, right? So what is a blockchain? It's an ability for me to know what's inside your database and for us to sync that without necessarily using a big database in the middle of us, right? So you've got a database, I've got a database, Kadim's got a database, Liz has got a database, and we can sync all those records up. The previous way of doing that was I could send emails to each other. Um, And if I send you an email, you would then have somebody in your organization that compares your email to my email. To have something in the middle of all of us to central Sometimes that works, but for some problems, it just doesn't work because there are too many banks. to. Have. What do you centralize around? So to have this thing that can come to consensus about the state of our data is really, really nice. So uh, there's a, an organization called Prime Chain, I believe, uh, in India um, that have produced something called ClearChain. Because you've got to have the word chain spearheaded by the Bank Chain Consortium, um, which was launched in February with the backing of uh, SBI, ICI Bank, and, and a few others, and uh, they're, they're kind of really looking exploring blockchain can help them reduce fraud when a borrower takes a loan against one asset from multiple banks. So I have a car, I'm going to use that to secure a loan from ICI Bank and then I'm going to go to SBI and I'm going to secure that asset against a loan from SBI as well. Previously, you might expect that banks would be talking to each other about this, but banks talking to each other through like messages and the back-end stuff just doesn't work. It's all done on spreadsheets. It's all very manual. Replacing that with something digital is nice. You could have centralized this in theory, but where do you centralize it when you've got existing systems? So this is just a really nice example of where you've got fraud happening. um, You've got the ability to potentially reduce those fraud. um, And they're also looking at um, inward remittances um, and an alternative to swift i i I hear this one a lot and it's like hmm not so sure about that one uh, as a use case everybody's talking about replacing swift and blockchain's going to get rid of payments and it's going to be the future of payments i don't really buy that because payments are very very hard very very specialized and it's much more about the systems inside a bank but banks don't really have a system for talking to each other about fraud. All they have is people talking to each other about fraud, or they have some relationship with the police, or they have a relationship with law enforcement. That uh, ability to really get around and deal with suspicious activity isn't really there. So this, this actually kind of makes sense. And it's interesting that it's coming out of India. It's coming out of a startup based in India. Uh, it's interesting that it makes sense to me as a business case, where most of the stuff I see in blockchain absolutely does not. I think this one could have legs. Let's let's watch it closely and see if it becomes a thing.
1: Okay. Well, just like speaking as a former journalist, I'm just looking at the the words that are used and <laughs> like
2: <laughs> the, not AI used words. The, the
1: Times further reported that ClearChain is one of several projects being pursued by the group. You know that makes me think this is this is a pilot. This is a consortium oh, yeah. doing this. So what is this then? This is just a little like look what we've done. We we it's a we've had concept. a project. So why why, why do we care? I'm getting tired of the blockchain projects.
2: The, <laughs> so this is why we got to watch it. Yeah. Right. So why do I care about it? Because the business case makes sense. And the reason they're using this technology makes sense. And mm-hmm. that's actually surprisingly rare.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, I get this one. There's a lot of them where it's like we're doing using a blockchain to do pimp. Great, but you don't have the same problem that the people who invented Bitcoin had. The people who invented Bitcoin had a problem that central banks exist and government exists and they want to get around that. That's not a problem that banks have. They actually quite like that governments and central banks exist. They validate their existence. So why use a technology that was built to destroy centralization for centralization? That makes no sense. I, um, I mean, you're just
3: assuming that people built Bitcoin. Might have just been one guy. It, it was um, several guys. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly I'm slight with Liz here because my, my reaction was, and you know, I do not know as much about blockchain as you do, my reaction was, oh, why do you need blockchain to do this? You just have a, com- a company that, that provides all the banks with KYC services. Or I, and most
2: countries do have that, right? So there is just like a bunch of databases you can subscribe to. And in countries where that centralized company doesn't exist, th- those databases are profit-making entities usually. Right, not always, but usually they're profit-making entities that are part-owned by the banks. What, rather than inventing that profit-making entity, why don't I just have a bit of technology that syncs up all of my data? That potentially reduces my costs. I see. We're bringing out the socialist in you. <laughs> We're bringing out the cost-conscious <laughs> former <the> bank employee.
0: <laughs> isn't that also, obviously KYC is another Swift business model, isn't it? They're trying to get everybody they don't the know. Thing. They
1: don't know anything about retail KYC. Swift, I don't know why they go on and on and on about it. Sorry, sorry, Swift. Just, <laughs> <laughs> they don't know anything about that market.
0: Stick sorry. to payment. Yeah,
1: payments, bro- securities processing, payments processing. Do what you know, sort of, okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Are you not a fan of the MT-103 message no. format? Oh, off <laughs> Liz you spent years of your career
3: talking
0: about I that I still miss
1: ISO 6166 I didn't think they had to do ISO 2022. or I just like, put an extra data field to cause so many problems for banks
3: I'm gonna need like a <laughs> translation
0: <laughs> and if you're interested in our upcoming ISO standards in financial services show Liz will be.
2: Uh... there are five people laughing really hard at Liz right now
0: <laughs> <laughs> moving on then to our final story of the week um Chicago should be a fintech hub, but why isn't it? A city that hosts CME Group, Morningstar, Discover. You know, it's a gigantic city, financial services background, pretty decent tech background. Yeah. Liz, as token American on the show, <laughs> why isn't it a fintech hub?
1: It's Chicago, my kind of town, not where I'm from. But it's a lovely city. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's the headline, really, you know, should be a fintech hub. Why isn't it? I mean, there's certain reasons why London's a fintech hub. There are a lot of, you know, different factors that make London such a fintech center. But, you know, financial services isn't in London or New York. It's it's everywhere. It's in Columbus, Ohio. It's in it's in Kuala Lumpur. It's everywhere. Um, you know, Chicago has an advantage in the U.S. that it does have a very old established financial services center, but not in sort of the technology side. Chicago, I mean, anyone in the risk world looks at the Chicago School of Risk Management. That's where sort of financial innovation was born. 20th century risk management was born in Chicago, which is probably why a lot of people don't like to talk about that era anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the CME and the CBOT were open outcry on the trading floor for a very long time. They were of the last holdouts before everything went electronic. But that said, you know, there's a lot of universities in Chicago. It's cheaper to live in than a place like New York. It's a lovely city. Um, you know, yeah, sure. Um, this, there, I don't think there would be anything wrong with doing but a fintech there, Is that just a
0: classic Europe. Why is Silicon Valley Silicon Valley? It's you, yeah. you can't just you can't just bottle lightning or however you want to. You can't yeah, just but I don't think things. I
1: don't think Silicon Valley is a fintech hub. It's a tech hub.
0: Know, yeah, but, but it's the same yeah. thing, isn't it? You've just got these cities who want yeah. to be the next yeah. Silicon Valley, or you want to be. the next Yeah. B- uh, yeah. No, I think hub. that's
1: wrong. That's wrong. You shouldn't be like we. I used. To, I get a lot of people coming to me saying, "Can we be like London?" I was like, "No, you can't."
2: It's the old saying: Don't try to be the the next somebody else. Be the first you, and don't try to be the next London. Don't try to be the next Silicon Valley. Be the first insert city name here. Be the first Chicago, and and, and play to your own strengths is is I guess the piece there.
1: I mean, um, it, yeah, in terms of risk, I mean, when I first started writing about risk management. I was told not even to mention technology because risk managers are, are math people. They like slide rulers. You know they don't want the technology might hurt the numbers. Don't, <laughs> don't touch it. Um, and but so but now RegTech and comp, you know this is all really big stuff and fintech needs to hit the risk management world. So this would be a great place to all those people bat. are there. Yeah, <laughs> they're all at the University of Chicago. They're all there's a lot of banks. It's uh, the whole commodities market is in Chicago. It's so a it's a what you're saying that.
2: Uh, Chicago could be a fantastic reg tech hub like that's the risk and the reg tech stuff you've got the skills in that market but do you have the VCs there do you have do you have the policy makers there Yeah, you- I'm
1: so tired of VCs you know, what they can't get on a plane <laughs> Chicago's not that far away from Silicon Valley it's but like a two-hour plane ride. if
2: you look at any fintech company or even tech company in the UK that's scaled they've gone to Sandhill Road and they've got West Coast VC money I mean it's that or China those, those are the two places funding comes from. I always I, I think, I mean, one, one of the
3: harder stories to tell about any any sector or trend or whatever it is, is to tell the story about the people. Just because you actually have to go talk to them and you have to go check oh, what they no. say. <laughs> no, but genuinely, I mean, th- this is like, I'm really like getting to the the nitty gritty of like journalism. The ho- You know, the easy thing to do is sit at your desk and you know uh, look at your, cut, look cut at your, and paste press release yeah, yeah look at your email cut and paste press releases look at what's being published in accounts so on so on and so forth The always the hard story to tell is the story that's not already been you know digitized which is well what are the relations between people and so the reason why silicon valley is what it is is because there's decades of personal relations that you know sustain that ecosystem um same in London. This is the whole question. Right? Like, will, will London you know survive Brexit or not? Well, you have to go one of the advantages it has, and these are not advantages that cannot be you know undermined, but they exist. Is well, everyone knows London. People know people in London. London's
1: been a financial services center for centuries.
3: For centuries, yeah, right? So it's hard to beat. Why is Chicago not a fintech hub? Well, a you know it might be like this article may just be jumping the gun, right? It's, you know these things take a while, but b if you're starting a fintech startup, if you're from Chicago you know either you're going to leave or you're going to stay it's you know f- you know 50 50 whatever if you're from new york why am i going to go to chicago obviously i'm not i don't know anyone in chicago um i don't live there i've never been there and
2: so on and so forth so sorry I just, folks that live in chicago <laughs> no, I'm sure it's,
1: it's lovely I'm sure in the it's summer no, boy, boy, it's good know, sorry i don't make michigan you did break the beach. coast of the bambino
2: right oh, no, that was <laughs> yeah, boston my bad sure. sorry oh sorry, my liz. god sorry liz <laughs> oh i nearly i i nearly got my sports metaphors all wrong but i backed out but it
1: is is where the last u.s president came from that could spell
3: (laughs) 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 but but yeah i'm sure i'm sure it's lovely but um it's it's this thing of we really don't sort of appreciate enough well people go where people they know are right or where they feel like they should be and so if you're in the us and you got a tech startup probably you go well Silicon Valley has a reputation, New York has a reputation, so on and so forth. Well, the, the sort of chicken and egg problem is, well, how does another city get the reputation and therefore attract people? I
0: think there's something in the story about there was a deal between some of the big companies, Morningstar, DRW, uh, Inova, trying to come together to joint fund a fintech hub. That was going to exist in our space mm-hmm. as if that's like a level thirty nine. Exactly as okay. if that's like the seedling that you need. Well it might be, right? And, and, it and might, it be. might be, but yeah. also is it just are we just seeing great places to be and live? In in Europe, it's like Amsterdam, Berlin, mm-hmm.
2: the huge capital cities that are amazing places. Well, like, well say, often great places to live are great tech hubs there's something about having arts and culture it turns out the the agglomeration effect is something that evan davis um did in a a tv show about um where why is london what it is why are great cities what they are and the agglomeration effect is is it people who like certain things and who are successful tend to want to be around each other the agglomeration effect in in a nutshell and that is the same for the tech tribe it's the same for the finance tribe it's the same for the people who are into journalism but then when you get these mega cities you get all of those Together and it creates kind of a melting pot of of art and culture and journalism and finance and tech and so on. And there are these super cities really start. I think that was the name of the thing. It was called super cities. Um, It it was this idea that they start to evolve. And we're seeing those. And I think the subtext here is why isn't Chicago one of these? Because it could be. And and the there are things that you can do from a public policy standpoint.
1: Very. And this is not me putting Chicago down. I mean, it's it's not a. international city. It is a provincial American city. That's
3: exactly what someone says before they're about to put something down. No, I mean,
1: no, because I actually, I really like Chicago. I'm being funny, but... I really like, I, oh, I, no, but when you go, you you basically meet people who grew up in Chicago. When you go to New York... You New don't meet any anyone New Yorkers. Chicago, New York. Same with London. So, um, yeah, it's that type it's, of city. There's also
0: a history to this. I mean, obviously... I think of somewhere, let's say Tel Aviv. You know, that's that's becoming a, technic, a tech hub for a completely different set of reasons. Exactly, right? And They've so it's got not, it's the ex just, mossad
2: guys who really understand um, cybersecurity, so it becomes a cybersecurity hub. Like, it's the things that you've already got. So if I'm in a position in Chicago where I'm looking at, like, how do I make myself a fintech hub? The first question I ask myself is, what have I got? What are my superpowers that nobody else has? Which I think is the point you're starting yeah. to make, Liz.
1: Risk management
2: risk management's yeah. it there you go they, so they, you know that, if, you, if
1: you want to call gets the
2: kids excited the
1: Anyone, millennials
0: yes is, risk management any of you people price
1: <laughs> options and futures that came from the University great. of Chicago
3: we've solved it for Chicago <laughs> thank you Chicago you know you're
1: welcome please send the check to,
0: <laughs> to Liz Lumley the 11FS branding services <laughs> uh, consultancy very reasonable rates and I think that's a perfect place to end it thank you very much to my esteemed guests Liz Lumley Liz uh, I've seen that your blog has been getting quite a lot of news recently.
1: Yes, www.girl-disrupted.com.
0: You're writing some great pieces at the moment. (laughs) Thank you. Kareem. your work as always on the FT, anywhere else we should be plugging? Um, Besides uh, your friend's VR startup.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Kadam and on Alphaville, ftalphaville.ft.com. Please do read. And subscribe. And subscribe and pay the... The fee for the FT. (laughs) Exactly. The world needs good
1: journalism. Academy's Twitter
2: account is my everything. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a lovely sentiment to end on.
0: Uh, Thanks very much for listening. If you like what you heard, then subscribe, tell your friends, leave us a review. We do love reviews. They help us greatly. That's all we have today. Thanks for listening.